How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. And while you're there, why not subscribe? Poet, playwright, novelist, documentarist, short story and songwriter, my guest Nick Burbridge is a powerhouse of creativity. Whether playing with McDermott's Two Hours, collaborating with The Levellers, writing award-winning plays with Tommy McDermott's Theatre, engaging in debate on Radio 4, or having questions asked in the House of Commons about his non-fiction investigation of the Secret Service's War Without Honour. He has been described as a second-generation Irishman with a high intellect and an angry disposition. Is that true, Nick? That was Jerry Gillard. That was the guy who used to own Folk Roots said that. We met... I'm going to digress. I digress all the time. Oh, don't worry. Uh, this, this, this is a, this is, this is a, 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 a warehouse of digression here. Oh, good. He came down once to do the interview after, and we went to a club with a big guy who was related distantly to Thomas Hardy. He was a bouncer at the, at, at, at the club we'd come from. And because Jerry's voice was very, <laughs> we went to a club, and the, the, the big man went and pulled the wires out of the speakers and stood next to them so that we could do our interview in the corner of the club without being, um, so we, and we could hear each other. And meanwhile, people gathered around, but no one dared touch Mr. Hardy. He was a big man, had one of those teeth that you can push in and out, you know, that have been punched out and he was full of teeth. But yes, after which Jerry did a full page article in the um, in Folk Roots, which has folded since, and described me as a, I, I do recognize it, yeah. Um, both my grandfathers were born and bred Irishmen, mm. and um, and my father certainly had a very fierce intellect. Um, so uh, uh, yes, uh, I'd like to think I'd inherited some of his intellect, not not altogether all of his traits. <laughs> and the angry disposition? Yeah, I have always been pretty furious um, about. A lot of things but then if, if I've been growing up now I think it would be a fury that overwhelmed me whereas you know in the Thatcher days for instance um, there were so many people outwardly furious and doing something about it um, that there was a sense of community. Mm -hmm. I was 14 in 1968 so um, I, I remember and I remember sending off to, to the Chinese embassy for, for my little red book, <laughs> which I got in the post and reading Marx at about 12 and 30. I just remember there being a, uh, well, certainly late 60s, obviously. And then, then yes, then 80s and 90s when the, the, there were waves, weren't there, of, of feeling that and the poll tax. Uh, nowadays, uh, people are banging pans in the street for nurses whose pay is being slashed and who who are being charged to park <laughs> and and nobody is is seems furious do they well i think to a certain extent they're furious but in the other direction the thing that i've noticed over the last few years is that the the, the language of the revolutionary left and the attitudes of the revolutionary left from the 60s and 70s don't trust the man you can't believe what you see all that sort of thing has now been co-opted um, by 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 the, by the reactionary right. Well, of course, when you go full circle, there's little to choose between. <laughs> you go to the extremes on either end. Of course, um, you you read some of the the, the venom that the, the, the very far left, not anarchists. I mean, far left within um, socialist party. Network. I remember the Socialist Revolutionary Workers' Party with Vanessa Redgrave and so on, going to see a, a meeting with Jerry Heaney, the little man who who who, who was one of the early um, toucher and feelers um, that came out later. But watching his rallies was like um, being at a Nazi rally. It they were they were just um, the rhetoric and the the. It didn't seem to me like very close to the the um, fury that I wanted to feel. It seemed like a formulaic um, 
And as my friend who took me there, who's a, who was a, a revolutionary socialist, he said, well, you anarchists are the first people we'll have up against the wall <laughs> when the revolution comes. So, yeah, I think, I think I've been a lifelong anarchist. Um, philosophically, you know, I mean, the Chomsky-like um, um, thinking anarchist. And, and um, I think there were times, the one I says, there were times of that fury felt like it was shared not or not co-opted or not borrowed or not taken but was actually spontaneous like portugal 74 or, or in paris 60 that it was actually going to manifest in in things falling apart in a in a creative way but but somehow now what is what is what are we doing uh, it's extraordinary and and that's where i think i think if i was growing up now that fury would be probably descend into a, a kind of despair. Normally with regards to um, the, the Plastic Podcasts interviewees, it, it's a case of uh, somebody will say they're either born and raised initially in Ireland and came across New England or, came, came, or, or born and raised in England uh, from Irish parents and so forth. Uh, but there's a, there's, there's kind of a one-stop move, which is like uh, Ireland across to England. And that's, that, that's, that's been the focus thus far. But yours is, yours is unusual in as much as there's a very, very early diversion <laughs> via Malta. Yeah, no, I mean, but, but there, there, were, there, were, there were sort of fallings out with the Irish side of the family. And my father's specific purpose was to... Um, his, his father was dead, uh, as was my mother's father, um, by the time they met. And um, he, he very, it's, it's, it's interesting because it links with what I was just saying, that there, were, there was this um, grafted on, if you, looking for your soul or your heritage in your mid-teens, as, as most of us do, um, there were three things that, that there was, um, a sense of there was a there was a, a there was an Irish family on both sides, coincidentally, from Southwest Ireland, from from Cork and Kerry, um, which which um, was just almost denied or forgotten. Um, there was a, a history that my father and mother had that was also similarly shared, and the, and I had a brother who was put into hospital at the age of three which was before I was born after he'd had a, a dry oxygen birth and was severely I'm going to say handicapped I don't want to say you know he, he never spoke he never um and that's a long that's a different story about a very tragic ending but there was this whole the, the Englishness was part of something that was grafted on along with the disposal of what they used to call imbeciles in those days to to an asylum uh, where, where they, he was never visited uh, and 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 during my teens I had this um, revolutionary if you want further in, in try, trying to uncover who I was where I came from um, uh, and almost like someone with gender problems why or gender uh, whatever you want to call them uh, questions um, why it was I felt like such an exile in the situation I was being brought up in, which was an English middle-class um, home. And part of that English middle-class home was my father being an army doctor and going out to Malta um, where I was born. Uh, in that he followed um, my mother's father and great uncle's footsteps in that they signed up in Kingstown, Dunleary, uh, Kingstown as it was in 1916. and. Um, went out to fight for the British and one of them died. And one of the songs that are um, people's favorite song is about them, is about them. So um, it, it was all part of that. It wasn't anarchic because it was trying to bring question as, as Chomsky said, question the all forms of authority to see the, whether they're legitimate. And the authority that was also making me extremely depressed um, had a had a, a, a associated societal part to it, and a, a, a part of denying a heritage, and especially denying the existence of my brother, who I then went and discovered, and um, visited, and took out, and treated like a brother until he later died. Um, so it's it's a, it's a personal 
a personal campaign that, that links up with a particular does that make sense Yes, no. Uh, uh, I mean, in particular, you, you use the term exiles, which yeah. is one that's come up uh, on a number of occasions when talking to various interviewees here. I mean, how, 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 how do you feel that how do you feel that you were exiled? Well, there's only one place in the world where there are three or four generations of Burbages buried, and that's in St Finbar's Cemetery in Cork. And standing there, I just dissolved you know, a, a sense of home, um, a sense of, of and, and uh, digging up what little paperwork there is and, and um, you know, discovering that my great-grandfather was a, was a plumber who worked, who, they lived and saw the house in St. Patrick's Hill. And this, I was exiled from a whole, and that's where the music came in with me. I started playing the music, the Irish traditional music, and in that, I found a similar sense of home uh, and and an identity that, I, yeah, it can be questioned in a sense, is that a, a constructed identity? But then I can answer that by saying no, because I went back and found the materials that it was constructed from uh, long before I wanted to have it. And the authenticity to me lay in the the original identity, the identity that was my heritage, and which I then went on to express culturally in, in plays and poems and stories, but always with a sense of, I'm not at home. Um, I'm, I'm looking for a home and I find it, um, especially in Southern, I was, uh, um, you know, and, and the way that people respond to it. Um, sorry, yeah. I hear you. I hear you in drawing in a breath. <laughs> I know. I know. It's 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 a thought that occurs, um, which is that um, you you say you found the paperwork and that you 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 were able to justify that uh, that that sense of identity. But what if you hadn't found the paperwork? What if it was simply uh, an instinctive sense of this is where you felt that you belong? That's a very difficult one, isn't it? Because that's what that's what made me when I when when I was in my early twenties. I I. I began a 15 year long relationship with the mother of two of my children who came from Belfast, an extraordinarily strong sense of, of where she came from, who she was, um, and what was being done to that. Um, so without um, going over and seeing my people and they were very, actually very rude to her. Um, um, but without that kind of documentary, um, well, th well, this is where I was, this is where my family were, and they, they were semi-middle-class Protestant Irish, but you did have troubles in the 20s with, with you know, and, and, and there was a real history there. Um, and, you know, when you know your, your granddad, your great uncle went up to enlist and sail off and, and, when everything was going on in Ireland, they were fighting. As so many, it's a fascinating topic in itself. The the, the Irish who went off and fought for the British in the First World War, um, uh, and the, some of the vitriol you get from the Irish side in in, in you know, historians is 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 often well balanced by historians who are much more take a much more even view of why this was happening and what the state was at the time and of course then you had the free stages and then and the the um the civil war um it was a it was a terribly complicated business but you know the, the family story is that we went over with the normans in in the 12th century and um and and the old um adage that the, the irish normans woman woman more irish than the irish so there was that whole, you know, and the castles are all over the countryside. And so, I don't know if you if if it, if you had to persist in, it would perhaps seem more like an adoption of identity, which I've known thousands of people in Irish music do, um, and do it. It's fine if you're good enough at the music and you play the music well enough and with enough um, sympathy. I think I think you're you're welcomed. 
but I think uh, to have a bedrock underneath that I could stand on and write standing on. Um, these were my grandfathers. They were, these were people seven generations back. Um, it's a very close connection, isn't it? Yes. And, and therefore it's, it meant a lot to me to substantiate that. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. One of the curious aspects of these interviews is that they never go quite where you expected. I wanted to know more about Nick's relationship with his brother and how that fed into his own sense of identity. Well, the, 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 the only first thing was packs of biscuits, boxes of biscuits used to appear on the, on the stairs at Christmas, addressed to a Richard Burbridge. And, and I didn't know who Richard Burbridge was just when I was very little. So he, was, he would have been put in the hospital um, about three or four years before I was born. My sisters knew him, uh, but he, this is what happened in those days. Uh, people couldn't cope with, with, with children like him. Um, they were called imbeciles. In fact, in that, what was a National Health Hospital, you go up to London on the, red, on the side, red, right-hand side, there's a big red brick near Red Hill, Earlswood, hospital um big red bricks now richard branson bought it and turned it into luxury flats and this the nhs sold the care of all the people in it um including the queen's cousins who who were there i'm not saying it was a perfect place so terrible abuses went on there but it was a safe place um and he ended up out in the community with four of his mates from the ward but in an upstairs bedroom with a fire door, and when he had one of his epileptic fits, was, I've got it on a, on, a on a computer screen saying, this move will kill my brother, um, I want you to know that now, but there's nothing I can do about it. And within six weeks, he had an epileptic fit behind this double, and he was left from early hours of the morning till seven the next morning before the bloke who was meant to be looking after him, private care, uh, Public care, health, healthcare um, worker was asleep in the kitchen with the washing machine going around, so he didn't hear him. Whereas on the on the hospital, there were a couple of nurses who'd be awake looking through the screen, and if Richard had one of his epileptic fits, they would be out, you know, within seconds, and he would, you know, be looked after, taken to formal hospital, and taken care of. So it's um, he was both incarcerated at the age of three with huge male patients who'd swing in chairs, banging their fists in the air, and and he ended up. That was that was the mode of dealing with people like that then, where the local children went up and threw stones at the windows and shouted monkeys, and then the the so-called care in the community. Um, politics that came in um, killed him. So these experiments in how to deal with, much like how to how to how to <laughs> examine A levels, um, are done uh, in the face of, of of expertise. I think probably for the most part, um, much as dealing with with other mental health issues, I, I think they're. they're um, uh, it's a yeah. It, it, it's a, it's something that breaks my heart because he, he, the families were encouraged to put put those people away and never see them, because it would be too painful for them supposedly and too confusing for the child. But I know from my mother that my father went to see him once a few months after he was put in there and he supposedly didn't recognize him at all uh, and this gave my father the perfect um, reason. I know that um, to sort of do a little tie-in with 1977 when I first met my partner and her brother of the time and um, we went to visit Richard and they had their annual fair at Earlswood. They said would we come along and play 
some Irish music, which we did. And my brother was just, he used to, when he got very excited, sort of bubbles used to come down his nose. And he used to get, he, he, he used to rub his hands. And, and there was something that he knew who I was, and he knew that we were performing. And he was proud, all these things I'm not projecting because they were all felt. Uh, and, and he was proud to be part of this little show that was going on and sitting there and sort of rocking backwards and forth. Extraordinary moment, absolutely extraordinary. But it ties in the kind of sense of the unconscious legacy that families and generations share and, and that, 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 that overcomes the what's imposed upon us and that also takes us back to a sense of anarchy that the um i've worked voluntarily for, for, for the last 15 years in the local nursery school i haven't missed a morning till the lockdown and the most joyful and creative mornings there are when the uh, school readiness has is forgotten and the formal teaching um, structures that have become more and more in place have forgotten and the teachers tend to be in the staff room and the nursery nurses and the others and there's this slow um, build-up of creativity around and, and an energy that happens uh, it's, it's wonderful that's anarchy to me <laughs> it's, it's anarchy at work in there and, uh, and I think it works in families and, and it's what um, it's not the structure uh, and, and what's um, the, the the structure that's forced on members of families that that gives them that can give them that that creativity. It's the um, it's what is naturally in in the heart. Um, yes. I'm yeah. Just, uh, just to, Sorry, just... I told you I'd digress. I oh no, no, the, the, <laughs> no, no. It's it's it's, 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 it's the, thank you so much. It's um. Uh, just, just, just to give uh, this, uh, this some context, uh, when was your brother born? Brother was born in, he was born, I think, probably illegitimately, the year after they came back from the, the they'd met out in India where my father had gone as a doctor, she'd gone out as a nurse. And um, I think he was, he was born boxing day 46 so i'm not sure 46 yeah. and he, yeah. he he lived till when he lived till 1997 so he lived he was four, um, no it was 40 he was he was just before his 50 oh, it was 46 46 anyway it was just before his 50th birthday he died so yeah yes that's just before indian independence isn't it 46 46 yes 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 it was all it was all um so you've got it you you, you 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 got to kind of uh, i this this is another digression really i was going to just um i, I was going to sort of point out that uh, that your your discovery although your your reclaiming of those irish roots to a certain extent is um is is a reclaiming of your brother as well it's uh, it's trying to overcome the, the 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 denial that's involved in yeah and and i'm not is blame is not you can't you can't blame people for their oh God, jesus i was immoral enough in my time but it was also partly to do with my parents having these pasts that they kept under the carpet um and uh, not and that along with the irish legacy and along with my brother and it, it was these sort of mainly these three elements that were seemed to me to be questionable and something that i needed to to sort out um in order to find a workable identity because i had been deeply depressed as an adolescent and, and very very uh, in exile as i say in, in a sense of with a sense of exile theoretically you could have gone either way couldn't you because you have a you have a, a, a family history that's very much taken up with empire well it seemed to me the more authentic it was the simple it, it, it's what made my heart sing and the other left me cold utterly cold and also since i went once i'd become involved with my first partner and her family and what what happened to them as a result of the troubles and and so on then that redoubled that sense of of um the music the culture the um 
what belonged in Ireland, basically, as opposed to what was imposed, again, um, from above. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. You can find and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Now it's time for The Plastic Pedestal, where I ask one of my guests to raise up a member of the diaspora who they consider to be of personal or political or cultural significance. This week, actor Paul Moriarty is on the horns of a dilemma. Well, it's very odd because uh, I was part of a play reading by John O'Donoghue, uh, which was a kind of a play with music about uh, Francis Bacon. And I would never thought of him as Irish. I sort of thought he lived in uh, a cellar in Spain or in the top of a castle in Italy or something. He was very much a separate kind of person. But in the play, I found out that, in fact, he, uh, he liked to go drinking after being in this weird, mad world that he inhabited, slashing this paint on this anger uh, against the Catholic Church, a lot of it. Uh, and then when he got bored of doing that, he'd take everybody out to the casino because he just, like actors, he wanted the passion to keep going through the night. He didn't want to stop. Uh, and when I was over in Dublin, they, in one of the art galleries, they've done his whole studio exactly the way it was with photographs and it is a complete mess and a nightmare squeezed paints and god knows what cloths and things all over the place and the turmoil of this man's mind so i thought this isn't really what i think of as an irishman and so i uh, i opted for my father who was known as big jim uh, he was uh, as i say he was in the merchant navy and he was also a stoker on oil carrying ships, which was, you know, a very perilous, dangerous job, going backwards and forwards across the Atlantic uh, with the German U-boats and what have you. And uh, he was a very powerful man, partly from shoveling coal for four years or whatever. And he was known in uh, around town for being quite a boxer and goodness knows what. And also for mixing with some uh, dicey friends. He was going to meet my mother, uh, to go to the pictures and they were standing outside of Burton's with his mate of his and he was looking at this overcoat and his mate said that'd suit you Jim that'd suit you down to the ground you'd look wonderful when you go and meet me he said yeah yeah I would I would be, be great but look at the price of it. he said just a minute this bloke Kenny disappeared and he peers in the front window and he's taking the overcoat off the hangers nips around and gives it to my dad here quick let's leg it and they go off down the road. So he was part of this uh, rich, interesting group of people. And uh, I just regret that I didn't uh, have more to do with him really. When I think that he used to travel miles just to come and see me play and then take bunches of us out afterwards and we'd be drinking and chatting. And at university, he'd, he'd go out with the lecturers and I used to be dreading it because I thought, you know, and they loved him. Everybody loved him. He was the... Uh, the wild colonial boy, in spite of uh, thinking that now he was English, but he wasn't. He was Irish, Irish through and through. Uh, and he drank and he smoked and he finally gave them both up. And uh, he just went boom at the age of 58. And the doctor said to me, he said he, he, the damage was already done. And in fact, coming off everything so quickly was probably too much for his system. But while he was around, uh, it was never dull. And he might have been punchy as an 18-year-old, <laughs> having power. But he was the sweetest man, and he used to look after all the aunts and take stuff for them and mend things for them, and goodness knows what. He used to take all us kids. He had a van when he was in the glass trade. Uh, pack us all in the back and would all go off to uh, Shoreham or Lansing. Uh, sandwiches on the beach and everybody having a great time, and then we'd stop at a pub on the way back. And all the kids would be left in the van with crisps and orange juice and what have you while the grown-ups uh, stayed there for an hour, two hours. Uh, of course, the number of people drink driving in those days was immense. And he was once, when he was a salesman, he was quite, quite smart. He always said, dress yourself up so you look kind of superior. And he was done 
for uh, speeding and they were going to take his license away from him and uh, he got up in court and charmed the judge and he, you're not such a bad fellow jim and i realize that your work depends on it and i'd gone down i think i was about seven years old just to be supportive and we went to the pub next door to see his solicitor and his solicitor said bloody old jim that judge didn't half love you didn't he you lucky son and there were police in there and said, whoa, you've got away with that, mate. Uh, people just loved him. Uh, unfortunately, the drink did start to get the better and he became quite a liability. And uh, in the end, uh, I persuaded him to go to AA and he went. And I used to go with him occasionally. And that became his addiction. AA was the addiction. Uh, so it was that changed him. He became, I think, ultimately English at the end. Quiet man, um, very sober, very polite. And the wildness of the Irish and Ireland and, and gone. Paul Moriarty there on his father, Big Jim. Now back to our conversation with Nick Burbridge. Nick has had two books published focusing on Northern Ireland, and I ask about the first of these, Operation Emerald. I'll operate on the, thr the thriller. The yes. thriller. Oh, well, that was the one novel that, that I did. That was the kind of um, novel under a pseudonym that I... Uh, yes, you wrote under a pseudonym. I did, because it was... it was. Um, I worked on it with my brother in common law, who lived in Portadown. Um, well, he still lives in Portadown. But, uh, and he had... We, he loved talking. He had a, a, an initial story he wanted to tell, but he couldn't... He didn't have it in him to tell it. Um, fully and articulately, though he was full of ideas, and so he had uh, an input in that part as well. But um, he was a, a, a duty psychiatrist who went into the H blocks, and um, a Protestant who married to a Catholic. Who, uh, so, an interesting offshoot of that main family who were the Belfast Catholics. Um, so, he was the married to my partner's sister. And so we got this, but I was at the time trying to get my novel published with Michael Joseph and through an agent. And, and she, she, she said the six publishers, who said, unless I would do what they wanted me to do on this other literary novel, it wasn't going to get published. So, but then I said, well, I've got this. And she got that published within a month with Pluto, a left wing, um, who were going to produce these pinko thrillers, they called them. <laughs> um, and... They went bust. My effect on on institutions, I'm afraid. <laughs> so watch, watch out. But Pluto did. I had, I'd written a, a second novel that I was going to publish under my own name about the second of June, Bader Meinhof, um, green type stuff in Germany. And um, but it was it was very interesting in the current light because we we actually had, although it wasn't true, we had this old general. Um, general thinking he was going into Stormont, lacing the cutlery with Kreutzfeld Jacob disease. Ah, the old mad cow. <laughs> yeah, and thinking he was doing this and so that you wouldn't be able to tell all the politicians would go mad and then the place with the Americans, it was all American, American needed a uh, neutral island and it was a it was quite a complex and quite interesting plot but <laughs> you wonder now who went in and laced the, the cutlery at the houses of parliament <laughs> a few months ago because they're, they're all acting like mad cows but yeah no we were we were but that came that came out from pluto and 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 there's a there was a wonderful thing on a on a, on a newscast early in the morning where the, the newscaster was in tehran talking about what was going on there and on the, on the um new on the book stand behind him was a whole batch of operation emerald Brilliant. It was wonderful but it didn't it didn't you know they they went bust and that was the end of that um, but you, you wrote under the pseudonym we never kind of got around to psycho like, um... dominic mccarton mccarton was the name of the family two of the brothers unfortunately peter mccarton who was in who had if you read howard Howard Marx's book, High Times, there was some very strange thing with a man called Jim McHann who got Marx over, but it was to do with raising funds. And you, Peter, would, threw some petrol bombs at Queen's University 
uh, it was to do with making some kind of, oh, I, I don't know, you'd have to read the, the book, but it's in, it's in. And Peter went into Cromlin Road for it, and I don't know what happened to him in there, but he, he, he was bipolar anyway, but he was writing wonderful articles for The Observer about what was going on in, 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 in Ireland at the time. And, but he then became very ill, and they came over to England, the, 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 the children predominantly, her father came over to London, mother stayed in Belfast for a while. But they were in the Woodstock Road in, in the area of, of East Belfast, in the middle of a Protestant enclave. So um, both, the, both the mother and my partner at different times rode their bicycles defiantly through the wrong areas and were both severely beaten up by crowds of women as a result. My partner had UD carved into her forearm. Um, so this family were, 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 were there at the middle. The children were sent over one by one and then the family itself moved from Belfast uh, over to this country. But Peter had by then become so ill, he went and hanged himself in Egypt. Mm. Um, and his younger brother, talk about punks, Irish Aiders. Our Sunday Times did an article about them. They called them the Three Musketeers. There was one who I wrote a song called Dirty Davy that the levelers made big. Um, they were, he was one, he, he hanged himself with his underpants in a, in a police cell in Margate on a bank holiday. I don't know what had happened to him or been done to him. Irish Adrian, who was the younger brother of, you know, in the McCartans, jumped off uh, a block of flats in Hove ninth floor he this was all within six months um and anthony survived he then died years later so all three brothers are dead that family was um incredibly embroiled in 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 the troubles but in in, a, in such a human way i mean what was he doing he wasn't setting a bomb he was throwing a couple of petrol bombs against the walls of queen university queen's university in order for jim mccann to get money out of howard marks it's the kind of thing that happens in real life, but it's not, you know, it's not predictable and it's not, um, and, and so was, I mean, Anthony, you know, I was already into the music, but Anthony's the, the purity and his, 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 um, his, uh, his sister's bloke, Gogi McCulloch played the whistle on, on a, on the song called "The Men Behind the Wire." If, if, if I may, speaking of speaking of this, um, uh, because obviously you then went into a kind of almost whistleblowing yourself with regards to you and Fred Holroyd doing "War Without Honor." Yeah, well, I met again. I met Fred backstage at a Labour Party fringe thing in the top rank. Fred Holroyd was a was a was a died in the wool. Yorkshireman always wanted to be in the army, got into the engineers and then decided uh, military intelligence came and gave a talk and said, we need military intelligence officers in Northern Ireland. I said, this is the, this is the most, this is the best job a soldier could be doing at the moment. So he enlisted and the minute he'd enlisted, he realized he'd made an mistake running around Ashford uh, where they used to do Canterbury, where they used to do all their exercises. Um, uh, you know, surveillance and being being watched and so on. Uh, but he then went over to Ireland, but he was very, very good at what he did. Um, and, and you know, and, and walking through Portadown, again, why I was so interested because it was in Portadown, around Armagh, Lurgan and so on. And he used to, you know, walk up and down the streets of Portadown in an Aaron sweater saying, hi, it's about you. So people, and because he'd been taught that the more uh, outrageous you are as an intelligence officer and the more risks you take the better an intelligence which it was proved true for with Captain Nyrak it proved true until he went to Cross McGlen one night and took it too far alongside Fred Colin Wilson who worked with, with intelligence from their headquarters in Lisbon uh, and who were also in, heavily involved in, in Clockwork Orange, which was the undermining of the Wilson government and saying Wilson was a Russian agent and so on and so forth. Colin Wilson was also, and there, when Colin Wilson stepped too far, he was, again, strange coincidence, locally, and this, was a, this has now been admitted, framed for what they call the It's a Knockout Murder, where he was supposedly managed to get away from a party karate shot this man much bigger than himself throw him in the river and then get back to this party all within 10 minutes when 
Um, he was put in jail for many years and he was finally pardoned and given 150 grand. This was a lot of money when, you know, how many years ago it was. But Fred heard about him, went into the, went to visit in jail and started talking about stuff that he knew. And then they were pooling their resources. When I met Fred, the book was going to be Who Framed Colin Wallace, Paul Foote's book, where they were both going to put their stuff in one book. So I said to Fred, well, why don't we try? And so I then went to the, the agent and the publisher that I was working with and they got Harrop's immediately took it up, Fred's book, Fred's material as a follow-up to the Stalker book, which had just caused huge ruptions and sold 70, 80,000 hardback copies. You know, so we just thought, wow. But just before publication, it wasn't the D-Notice Committee. There's, a, there's, there's someone wrote in the London Review, or the Guardian, Moncur and the Guardian said, well, what more can you do to, about Thatcher? What more can you do to upset a woman? It says this, 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 but not a sign of the D-Notice Committee quashing the book because the way they did it was to deny that anything Fred said was other than the product of his own fertile imagination, the fact that it had to be Kazivat out of the North for mental instability. Now, Fred had been under great stress, but he'd also gone down to Dublin without, against orders to make a visit. I won't go again, won't go into details about, um, and he was acting a bit, a bit like a maverick, but getting great results. Um, uh, whether it was the, the self-exploding, you know, there was the, 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 another of his stories that, that has not been doubted was that the, um, he and the RUC officer, they, they, they were, their source tipped them off uh, as to where a uh, bombards were hidden in a grave, Kilwilkie grave. They went there, um, they were removed, um, the the, far, the firing pins were were, were, were tinkered with. They were put back. This young lad was told to take them down south, um, and he, he strapped them to the side of his motorcycle. And the roadblock was set up to block him at the border. He's turned round, swerved back at high speed, and the and the bombards exploded, and the. British Army were watching him from the fields and they knew what was going to happen. And uh, yeah, you may need to want to censor this, but one of them came up and the, in the garage, uh, the, uh, the garage where this uh, explosion happened. So that's an end to another of you bastards. So it was, these were the kind of things that Fred was blowing the whistle on. They weren't minor, you know, and Wilson, uh, Wilson was blowing the, Colin Wilson was blowing the much more significant political stuff. So Ken Livingston made his speech on Fred's stuff, but people didn't believe them. Tamdiel interviewed them for three hours and let it drop. And then uh, um, Livingston asked Thatcher at PMQ, um, would you read this book as a matter of, of our book, uh, War Without Honour, as a matter of national uh, importance or whatever? And she just said, no, that was a wonderful source. But Tamdiel then, took it up and, and, and stood up in Parliament and, and I was one of them, thanked the people who had taken Fred seriously and exposed it. But Harrop, unfortunately, um, went bust. Uh, they couldn't bring the book out. So it only came out from a small publisher, Hull publisher, that, uh, lots of misprints. And in the meantime, though, I'd ghostwritten the book, you know, Fred had stuck some extra bits in that were, <laughs> but fair enough, it, was, it, still, it still contained what it needed to contain. But it didn't get half the publicity it should have done. Had it come out after Stalker by Harrops, you know, big, uh, well connected. But we launched it. It was launched at the House of Commons and and um, uh, McNamara was it McNamara the ministers? Anyway, I can't remember. But a lot of people spoke. Livingston spoke. And um, but what how they dealt with it was to try and sideline from which they did reasonably successfully over the next few years and since then. Fred's still alive, he's had a couple of heart attacks and he's not very well, but he's still about and he's still interested in this stuff. And people go to him from all over the world as a source about um, this material. And Wallace, you know, Wallace's stuff was much more explosive politically because he could prove that, you know, 
dissemination of, of information against the government. But Tamdiel said, this goes, of our book, this goes to government at the very top. In other words, these things could not have happened without the sanction of a war cabinet. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora, we all come from somewhere else. It's been a convoluted but fascinating discussion with Nick Burbridge, and for now, we wrap up with thoughts of home. First of all, though, we discuss yet another tale from Fred Holroyd. But I'll never forget listening to Fred telling again what interesting, what, what got my particular kind of brain um, moving was backstage in the dressing room when when Fred was talked to sort of bit talk about he was talking about uh, uh, getting information about the chalet bar in Portobello which was being rebuilt I've been blown up so many times I don't know why they wanted to rebuild it but that he had got some green a, 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 a troop of green berries to surround you know with a ready to to pick off the whoever was going to set the bomb and this little old man's truth. This is Fred. Yeah, I've got no really no reason to doubt it. Little old man come out of the bar and had the shits, <laughs> inched his way between the couple of corrugated iron um, sheets and pulled his trousers down, <laughs> shat on the floor, and was was humble. Then couldn't find anything to wipe himself with, fumbling round and lit a match to see if he could find it. At which point, one of them, I, I, you know, in a poem, I, I characterise him as someone from Carter. Uh, one of the, the soldiers lost his, and started shooting. So this shouts ricocheting across this bar over this man's head. And afterwards, by, by he must have prayed to the, to the Holy Mother, because afterwards, he was still there when Fred came out and said, Said, stop, stop, no, stop it. He came out with a torch and shone it on the old man, and he was still there squatting over. And he had no, and he had been unharmed. And it was the kind of darkness in the story, but the fact that it was told, a bit like Derry Go, you know, it was told with that Irish, it could only happen in Ireland, basically. <laughs> it, 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 it was. Um, and and in the poem, I make a point of the hatred that the, the, the old man is looking at him with, of gratitude, that he, that obviously, yeah, but, but just sheer um, hatred of what are you doing in my country? You talk about how um, this kind of thing has influenced not just like um, your, your, your own um, regard of what's to, what took place during the Troubles and so forth, but also your own creativity. And in what way would you say that's, that, that's kind of... Uh, uh, affected it. Obviously, my partner and and what what it did, what, what had happened to her, and the effect that had upon me, and other details of it, and and and, and the family that um, put into relief. Because my people, and like so many in the south, slightest didn't give a cuss what was going on up north. You know, they, they got what they wanted and, 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 and that led me to interrogate that attitude. Um, that, uh, but it was, it was the, richness is the wrong word, it was the, again, authenticity, it was the, it was the um, extreme nature and the, also the humour, the, 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 it all, it, it comes back to that sense of exile and home and this is their home, this was their home. And I've always written about home, I think, more than anything. And so it just, it just was a whole uh, play that never got put on. It was going to be at the Riverside, if I could have funded it, but I didn't. I think, oh, it was that one that your, your friend was, we put it on down in Brighton in the end, on with the toilet. Graham Duffin, who's done all that he's done since, you know, a huge figure. Yeah, and, and, and um, he, um, and uh, well, actually, we, I sent him out to pester the, crowd the queues before they were coming in <laughs> it was about the homeless and again my, my ex did a, this wonderful publicity job so it was on the telly it was all over the place 
And he, I sent him out to kind of hassle people. He got beaten up by an actual homeless person in the process of method acting outside the old pavilion theatre. And he didn't thank me for that. But I, but I didn't know how to direct. And they, they were, Tony Wiles was the main wonderful old Brighton. I don't know if you ever came across him. He played a lot in the fringe, but he was a class, classical, beautiful, wonderful verbal delivery. And he played the old man in it. And um, and uh, I didn't I didn't know how to to direct at all. But the whole play was about a deeper sense of what is home and what is not home. So I mean, it was it was sold as a play about homelessness, but it was all about what makes you know in the profound sense what's like Ludo or or being at home with your what what takes you home. And, and that's what most, you know, at the heart of most of my songs, whether it's about having children or whether it's about politics or whatever, it's about both the longing for and the competing against others for home so that you have a right to call. And that's, that goes through sexual politics. You, you, no one has a right to violate your home as a woman sexually. You know, this is your home and, 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 no one has a right to break in and there should be no excuses or, or uh, it's, it's a, it seems to me the most kind of profound um, and he, uh, you know the afterlife it's all pictured as a home isn't it or not as a home <laughs> as the case may be so it's that um, and my brother being cast out of his home for suppose and then cast out of what became his home for 50 odd years and dying in what looked like a suburban house with a television. He didn't know what television was. He never, you know, and dying locked in a, it's a very, it's uh, to me the sort of most profound um, issue. And now I live in the family home where six of us used to live because I don't think I'm strong enough to function uh, through leaving it. Um, so I live in what used to be is big enough for six people. I've remained in this family home alone, basically, for the last four or five years. So it's, a, it's, it's something that is, I'm obsessed about. I, th I, think, I think depression is, is spiritual homelessness, if you want to kind of put a definition on it. You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney and my guest, Nick Burbridge. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Paul Moriarty. Music by Jack Devaney. You can find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com, email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com, or find us on the usual Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter channels. The Plastic Podcasts has been supported using public funding by Arts Council England.